Welcome to Pilot Boys, episode 139. Today, we are talking about cryptocurrency, the NBA finals, and a billionaire summit on population control. So strap in those seatbelts, put those trade tables up. The Pilot Boys are about to take off. Get it. Welcome to the Pilot Boys podcast, where you will get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. And here are your hosts, Vish Want and Partha. All right, V. So let's start with uh, this crypto market crash, which has been an interesting one to observe. It's, uh, you know, obviously a part of the natural cycle of markets. But I think crypto has been an interesting, interesting industry to observe because I think the type of folks that it has attracted uh, tend to be, you know, very loud when the market is up. And then when it's down, you just kind of don't hear from them for a while. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating kind of uh, subset of culture that's kind of really, really grown alongside the pandemic, right? I think what happened was the boredom struck of not being able to do regular normal things that people do. And it gave a voice to a lot of people who already were socially kind of uh, inept, for lack of better words, we use the word socially awkward a lot, but a lot of these folks were also socially inept, just didn't have the skills. But suddenly during that time, there was a flood of money into these crypto markets and a ton of buzz around the cryptos um, growing that was also capitalized on some of the fear with COVID, like the whole idea of uh, having decentralized land and buying properties that were completely digital, the whole Facebook metaverse thing, like it just, NF, the NFT craze, yeah. um, it just all kind of created a lot of noise. Um, and it was almost impossible to ignore the noise. And the truth is that you can profit off of noise. Um, and that's the thing here, as we see the crypto markets crash, um, there were a small handful, as in all cases, a small handful of people here who really, really exploited this market dynamic that was created because money never disappears. It just changes hands. Um, and I think what's causing the crypto market to crash is that people are pulling their money out of the crypto market. So as with most things, artificial markets that are created or Ponzi schemes that are created, I'm not saying this is a Ponzi scheme, but it fits those kind of um, ideologies because the type of, of, of variability in these markets is completely built on um, hype, right? Because we still don't have a clear idea of what the market potential for any one of these specific cryptos is. We started to see that with the Ethereum thing because it was based on NF the entire NFT market was Ethereum based, right? So you started to see, okay, for me, it was always like, what is this shit actually going to be used for other than the black market economy, which I understood was also viable because the black market economy is obviously huge. But then when I started to see all of these cryptos sprouting up, I was like, okay, this is starting to become a volatile currency market. I've never been somebody who trades currencies. I think it's a very dangerous and very scary market to trade in. But as much as they want to ignore the fact that this isn't a currency, that's what they're trying to play it as, all of these crypto coins as forms of currency. 
Um, that's a long-winded way of saying that, hey, there's no such thing as an easy buck in this world. And I think that a lot of people in these last three years, both in the equity markets and the crypto markets, started to actually believe um, that uh, this shit was real. And when you see your market value going up, it's so much easy to fool yourself into believing and also creating narratives around, you know, and arguments around the fact that that this shit is real, right? We still don't know what it is fully. That's my my position on it. Yeah, I think a lot of growth in these early markets is based on new market entrants. So it's people coming in for the first time. And I think we're in a point in our economic cycle where that is starting to reduce. People are not coming into the crypto market with as much fervor as they have in the past, partially because the prices have gone up on everything. Mm. So, you know, for somebody to come in and buy a fraction of a Bitcoin, it's just not, it's not appetizing. It's not interesting. And that's yeah. why you have things like stock splits in, um, in uh, the, the regular stock market, because you want to keep things affordable for you know investors to come in and, and take a smaller stake but at the same time like a stock split at least makes you feel like you have a full stock like having yeah. zero zero one of a bitcoin is not that exciting no it's not that exciting and it's also like you're sitting and waiting there's so many variables and so much news that you're being inundated with like it's like i completely like at first at one point i'm you know I think we've all invested some degree into crypto. Most people have, whether or not people have fully, I've never gotten into it and gotten into the culture of it, but it was like, okay, there's some noise. There's an opportunity here. Let me put a little bit in, but I wasn't ever into this like new frontier of this is going to create a new generation of multimillionaires um, that takes the power away from the existing power structure. The reality is most of this market was still built on a secret society of billionaires um, kind of artificially manipulating the market. That's the other thing that happens in new markets that are unregulated. There's much easier to manipulate. And when you have large sums of money, uh, I think that's kind of what happened. And I think what's happened is a lot of the people that that were aware of the changing market dynamics, they have pulled their money out knowing and anticipating this versus kind of the the, the crowd of people who are crying uh, to get into that club of millionaires and billionaires. The whole hold on for dear life uh, idea also is kind of taking effect. And so those are the people that are being impacted. An interesting point too, when you you know they've they've tried to tie the crypto markets to the equity markets, um, and and what I've kind of followed is, you know, the crypto market sh- should shoot up when the growth stocks shoot up, right, or new technology stocks. Um, and recently, you're seeing a divergence where some when the growth stocks are going up, crypto is still going down. So even like tying this crypto into like technology and saying, "Hey, it's affiliate, it's a tech, it's a tech play," is also like starting to get deconstructed a little bit, and the alignment isn't there. So you're really starting to see: is this just an artificial bubble that was created by just a lot of capital being flooded into the markets, or is there something real here? And I think you're better. You're more tapped into technology than I am, obviously. It'll be interesting for me to ask you what you actually think the potential for this thing is and how much of this is just overblown hype. 
Yeah, there's real value. I think we're observing, though, like a correction to show how overvalued it was. Uh, but the simplest way to value crypto in terms of what it is, is that you look at what the Federal Reserve is doing and printing all of this capital over the last several years. You look at our inflation rates, you know, crypto, you're not going to have that. And mm. that's that's the single reason to have some is because you're not you know, privy to somebody else or to a government deciding how to value wealth. Now, it doesn't mean your whole portfolio should be that. I think it's uh, I considered it as a hedge against, you know, if if the market tanks, if the U.S. dollar stops being the global reserve currency, having a little Bitcoin is going to suit me well versus having all of my currency in dollars, because you look at countries like Zimbabwe, who've had their currency totally obliterated. And if you're holding 100% of your country's currency during a hyperinflationary period, your wealth is diminishing rapidly. And so, you know, there's definite value to me. Um, Bitcoin, uh, in a sense, is not as stable. Um, in the future, I believe it will be more stable, but it is very similar to gold in that way. Ever since we de- decoupled from the gold standard, uh, we're in an interesting situation where there isn't any actual value on global currencies. They're all fiat currencies, meaning they're not anchored to any sort of actual thing. And so they operated, in in my view, from a value standpoint, very similarly to crypto, but crypto is just very immature as a market. So there's a lot more volatility there. It's smaller. There's a lot of large players who are able to influence it. And the thing that's been a surprise to me is I expected it to go up in the case of a recession, but we're seeing it go down, um, which indicates to me that a lot of folks who are in crypto either were over leveraged in terms of how deep their positions were, or it's a lot of young people who don't have that much money saved up. And they're all pulling out their thousand, five thousand dollars of savings that they put all into Bitcoin because they have to pay bills or they lost their job uh, in these layoffs that have been happening or something kind of macroeconomically related. So I don't know the exact factors around it, but I definitely think um, this is an interesting time because we're seeing... um, the prices of crypto go down quite significantly. Um, I do think, you know, if I if I were to be looking to invest my capital into either the market or crypto, I'd probably be looking at crypto right now because I think there's more room for it to go up than the overall market at this stage. But it's going to be volatile growth, so I wouldn't be looking for a long term hold on a heavy position. Yeah, um, and you brought up the point that I was making. Like I. I that's what really gets me like weary where I'm not going to re reinvest here um, into crypto. I'm going to hold on to what I have because I don't I'm thankfully, at least for the time being, we'll see what happens over the next six months in a position where I don't have to liquidate all of my investments. Um, but I want to hold. But like that really is what scares me is because based on the education that I, I got of crypto, you know, what I was told, it's it's a hedge. Um, and the fact that it is following the rest of the market and that none of these cryptos, it's not just Bitcoin, but none of these cryptos are showcasing what they should show during a recessionary period that gold has always shown. The value of gold always goes up in a recession. Um, and that's not happening here with Bitcoin. Yeah, as you said, some of it might just be the nascency of the market. Um, but it's also something that you have to realize too, 
that just because there's a lot of noise around something and there's a lot of people invested into something does not mean that it is going to survive and that it, it it's being tested right now. Any new technology, any new thought gets tested. And the truth is, as you said, it might be a good time to invest if you truly believe that there is a future here and you're not just doing it based on the fact that you saw three years ago, Bitcoin went down to 16,000, then it went up to whatever it went up to 40, 50,000. And you think that's going to happen again. There is a chance, and this happens in the equity, anybody who's familiar with the equity markets is companies that were at, in the S&P 500 that were standard stable companies just disappear off the face of the market and they become insolvent as businesses. And there is that risk as well with cryptocurrency that people do need to factor in as they think about investing. It, it is very similar to the equity markets. Now, for me, I am I think it's much smarter if you are somebody looking to invest money and have some capital to invest to look at strong companies um, that are trading at low PE ratios, that pay good dividends, that are being impacted by what's happening with the rest of the market. Because the truth is that if you are an American citizen, a bet on the American economy is a bet on the equities markets. If the equity markets here completely dissolve or we go into depression, you're screwed anyways. There's no, there's nothing that you can do to save yourself. And these are markets that are mature. Um, and there are also opportunities if you want to get into like more risky growth stocks, invest in the tech sector, right? Because there are new technologies that are being developed um, that kind of fit the same mold as what cryptocurrency is. But I just want to exercise caution, even though people are saying that this isn't a currency market, it is operating. The way these markets are fluctuating and operating operates much like the currency markets. And that is not a safe place for anybody except for the most savvy investors who do also, quite frankly, have access to information that other people don't have to really, it's a, it's a guessing game. You don't know what's going to happen to currency at any given moment. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's just something to think about in this, in these times. And the overall th thought process is, is Understand that to make money, to make a living, to grow wealth in this country still requires hard work. Um, and the idea of getting rich quickly, it happens for a small group of people. And understand that this is a journey and a process um, to, to, to be patient with, not to get frustrated with. Yeah. And I, I think the other thing, too, is uh, when you look at you know, the overall market and you play out the scenarios of crypto being a hedge. Uh, if you look at kind of your doomsday scenario where the whole market tanks and the country doesn't have cash flow, people go back to farming and, you know, we're kind of living in that type of world. What are you going to do with your tremendous wealth that's stored in Bitcoin? Right. And I think like that's that's the other side of it is that in practicality, if you win in a massive way, but the world loses, you still lose because the yeah. world. Loses. And when it comes to investing, there's, you know, I think there's a balance that needs to be struck between wanting to make money and also putting your money into things that you believe are good for the world and just evaluating like what role you believe they play. And so if you really see Bitcoin as an equalizer in terms of, 
you know, helping to facilitate types of transactions that couldn't happen or specific cryptos, um, helping to safeguard against, you know, things like fraud or things like uh, things that, you know, kind of are, are making the economy less efficient, for example. I think it's it's well worth, um, you know, putting your money into those types of solutions. But that requires kind of the research and thought. Like one example would be like replacing the escrow on a real estate transaction just by using an F- NFT on a house as a really solid case for blockchain technology and for crypto. And those are the types of things that make the economy more efficient, contribute to, um, you know, what, what what I think the world is trying to build here, which is a fair and equitable society that creates wealth for all. And so, you know, that's, that's just kind of my two cents on that is, is it's important to evaluate your personal beliefs and how your financial decisions are reflecting your personal beliefs. hundred percent. I mean, that's, that's the reality of investing in anything, right? Like that's a, it's a cardinal rule that a lot of people don't think about only invest in things in businesses that you actually believe in, that you've done, that you feel good about because you know, that is, and not just following the hype train of, Hey, GameStop is going crazy. Ask yourself, is this a space that you care about? Or are you just looking at this as an opportunity to get rich? And I'm not faulting anyone for doing that, but you know, if you look through history and you look at successful investors, um, the majority of them, um, their success in their investments has been based on their belief systems. As you said, Partha, it's like they invest in companies that they 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 believe in. Obviously, the one that's always quoted and always talked about is Warren Buffett. But if you look at his positioning, very common sense approach. And that's, I think, also what the problem is with society and culture is that common sense gets put to the wayside for hype and fear of missing out and all of these things and then panic when things go bad. Like any this, there is no reason to panic at this point. Um, Obviously, if you are invested, panicking is not going to help you come up with the strategies and solutions to fix what's wrong, right? You have to handle adversity. And you know this, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're an employee, like you might lose your job, your business might shut down. What are you going to do? Quit? Like, don't try your best to create a system of thoughts to be able to process bad times and bad things happening so that you have a strategy to in place to come out of it, whether that strategy is successful or not, just playing the game. I enjoy playing the game. And you, you and I talk about this all the time. The game sometimes is the most fun when your backs are against the wall because it forces you to actually think through and utilize all of your skills to get out of those situations versus when things times are good. It's like you can make mistakes and still do well. Right. And that's just a thought for 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 people in general as 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 are, as we're going into what seems like a recession that's well said and i do i do also have to kind of tag on to your earlier comment about if you just jump into something to make money it doesn't make you a bad person but it does make you a sellout if you jump yeah. into something purely for money um so you know in a world that's less real every day it is something to consider whether you're standing by your beliefs or whether you're you know selling out um on that note, 
let's uh let's talk about i think some of the biggest sellouts in the world billionaires um there was an article that came out in the london times today of a secret meeting of billionaires in which bill gates specifically was referenced where they met to talk about population control and uh this is, you know, I, I just find this to be a really interesting topic. It's, you know, a lot of a lot of kind of Bill Gates hate on Twitter these days, a lot of, you know, conspiracy theory stuff. Um, but at the end of the day, I think we can all agree that when somebody is in a super powered kind of like mind state with a ton of wealth, a ton of power, a ton of access, they typically try to essentially mold the world. And I think we see that a little bit too often in our society with billionaires who think that they know how to make the world better and try to get involved like God in everybody's lives to manipulate how the world works. And essentially, like, it's, I, I think it's whack, man. I think it's super whack. And I think, you know, on on behalf of individuals across the world, I can say to Bill Gates, we really don't need your help, man. Like, just go do something else. Like we don't need you to be trying to control the population or to be coming up with strategies with other billionaires to try and, you know, solve the future of humanity. Because I think at the end of the day, it's not one person that's going to come up with a solution that's going to solve it. Like it's through the maturation process of all of us as a collective society that we repair our society. It's not going to be, you know, one savior that comes in and does it. Yeah, I mean, we're in an era of vocal and influential billionaires who make a lot of money and then don't know what to do anymore. So they try, you know, and we see this with with Jeff Bezos and his space exploration. We see this with Elon Musk and his purchase of Twitter. We see this with almost any billionaire you follow who's actually active on Twitter or active on any social media platform. It's like, I don't know what it is, but maybe they because most of these people didn't have much social currency as they were on their path to becoming billionaires. Um, they, in different ways, try to utilize their position of power and wealth as a position that, hey, I know what's better just because I've accumulated a lot more money than you have. Um, now, with that said, I will not completely shit on the Bill and Melinda Gates um, Foundation. They have done some good things. There is, and I do think that our governments take our people for granted. So there is a need or a space for people with incredible amounts of wealth to kind of try to tackle some of these issues and work together to try to solve some of these problems that aren't that we can't trust our governments um, to really solve or address. So I do think you know there is some overzealousness sometimes on his part because I think he has a lot of hubris. Um, in terms of like, I know what's best for society. But I do think that I, I'm happier that he is thinking about solutions now, this population control thing. You know, the way that it's framed, we don't have full context. But the truth is that we are, um, there are certain places um, in this world that that overpopulation is a severe issue that's causing a lot of issues for society. Now, controlling that is is much different through education and through, you know, altruistic and real methodology around birth control, around certain things, around education, around the economics of having children, 
all of that stuff is important. But then when you kind of take the power, as you said, like your God, it actually try to create actual things to prevent that from happening. That's a completely different conversation. Um, and I think we, we definitely need to have checks and balances on that. Yeah. And it, that's a very good nuanced take on that V. And I think it, it shows how thin the line is between altruistic kind of motives and wanting to improve the world and how easy it is for somebody in that position of power to just step over that line and try to solve the problem themselves instead of having the patience to let society solve it and make their own decisions. And I think, you know, anyone that respects everyone else's free will is doing doing a good job. But if you start trying to make decisions on behalf of people or force decisions on behalf of people, and this goes for politics too, there's a lot of policies that that aim to do the same. Um, that's where you get into trouble, and you know there's there's terrible consequences on our societies from uh, many individuals over many hundreds of years that we have record of just stepping over that line and trying to do a little bit more than they needed to do. Yep, hundred percent. 100%. And, you know, it's important for for us to be aware of these things, um, these things as well. Um, and, you know, a lot of this happens, entitlement leads to, you know, it seems like as people get wealthier and wealthier, each generation afterwards, they become more disconnected from society. So when those people are driving are thinking that they should drive the decisions, as you said, for what's best for society. How are you going to do that when you're not even connected to real people anymore? You know what I mean? And that's how, and if you are going to do it, how are you going to be including the real, are you including and being inclusive of people who are directly and truly being impacted by the consequences? Are you just guilty about how you made your money? And now you feel it's this age old story, right? You get rich and then you find religion and you find all these altruistic things because you feel guilty or, or survivor's remorse for how or what led you to the what sometimes it's just the fact that you're wealthy you might not have done anything illicit or anything bad but most cases to become a billionaire you had to have stepped on somebody somewhere to get there and so you're trying to solve your own kind of like whatever's going on for with you spiritually you're you're already trying to solve this thing from a bad starting point yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's such a great such a great point. Like the baggage that comes with uh, wealth or success as well can influence people in that way. Um, you know, it's a it's a very nuanced thing. But I think as as the, you know, individual listening to this podcast, I think it's important to just recognize what people's motives are when they're behind an action. And the, uh, people can do good things and bad things in their life, too. So nobody's really, in my view, nobody's a bad person. You just have yep. people who are trying to do the right thing, but maybe who are misguided in that in that attempt to do the right thing. And yep. having that empathy for people is really going to take you a long way in this world. Yep. Yeah. So speaking of uh, people who are you know, doing the right thing and, you know, really doing it well. Let's go to the NBA finals with the Golden State Warriors just proving what a championship team looks like. Uh, we saw game four. Steph Curry really elevated the Warriors. Um, Celtics couldn't close that one out, even though they led basically the whole game. And uh, they took game four. That momentum took them through game five. We had uh, Andrew Wiggins step up 
which was awesome con- considering kind of the career arc he's been on to have this kind of moment of redemption in in the spotlight for him and now we end up at a game six which you know when you're listening to this uh it'll be tonight uh, back in boston boston really seems to have lost steam after game three and uh you know, we we can all kind of look at this team and say, do they have what it takes? You know, do do, do Tatum and Brown really the two the two guys who are expected to step up and make plays on this team? Do they have what it takes, or is that Warriors championship mentality that they've groomed over the last decade is that going to just continue to uh, continue to work? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's frustrating sometimes is that. Um, when you listen, you mentioned the word nuance. There's not a lot of nuance to kind of just general mass media basketball conversations. And one of the things that was frustrating leading into the finals for me was this conversation around the Boston Celtics being this great defensive team. Clearly, they're the number one defensive team. All respect to them. They've played great defense throughout the second half season, been the best team in the NBA for the second half of the season. But again, we're talking about a half season and a playoff run. If you look at the Golden State Warriors over the last decade, all we hear about is Steph's threes, Clay's threes, the Splash Brothers. But the truth is that throughout every finals win, they've been a top three defensive team in the entire NBA. And I feel like they take a little bit of pride. They take a lot of pride in how they play defense. And I think if you look at game four and game five, what won the Warriors that game? Because in game four, the only person who had it going offensively was Steph. Despite that, because of their defense and because of their aggression on that side of the floor, they were able to take Steph's amazing performance. And this is how the Bulls used to win a lot of games in the finals, is Jordan would have these performances and the rest of the team, he'd score like half the points and they'd win because the defense and every other aspect, the rebounding, the the hustle plays, that team won. The Bulls would win the rest of the battle. It's Basketball is not just a game about how many baskets you put in to the bucket. And I think that's what we're seeing here with the Warriors team and why I have, quite frankly, so much admiration for them as just a basketball fan. Um, because I see a team that cares about every aspect of the game. They really do. Um, I also have to add to that. I think you're seeing a difference in physical conditioning play out. Mm-hmm. Seeing Boston at the end of these games, they're gassed. They're not running their offense fully. They're not They're not in motion. They're taking ISOs one-on-one. They're shooting threes instead of getting to the basket. And yeah, again, Golden State has a great defense, but it's a great defense that they seem to score on for three, three and a half quarters a game until they lose. And yeah. if you look at, I'll kind of set game five aside, but in game four, it was the lack of offensive production in the fourth that cost Boston that game. And in the fourth, in the first three games, they significantly outperformed Golden State. Now, there's obviously adjustments being made game to game, but from an overall kind of like from the eye test perspective, what you see is fatigue. You see the lack of energy in their faces. You see the lack of intensity. And, you know, from my lens, Marcus Smart and Al Horford really are the only guys that look like they want to win the championship on the Boston Celtics right now. 
Yeah, I mean, look, you've got to want it more. And this is also going to – this is a, a young team that hasn't been here before. Yeah. They're probably exhausted. They just came off of two excruciating seven-game series against the defending champions. And um, has the third most minutes of all time in the, in the postseason right now, too. Yeah, I mean, there's some exhaustion. But can you dig deeper, right? This is this – is, LeBron James made seven straight finals. You know what I mean? Like, uh, and he played in the Olympics. You know, Michael Jordan. They, they, they made they, these teams. This is the difference between champ. This is how champions are made. Do you have that extra layer? You know, it's not an excuse. You, you have to be conditioned. That's part of this game. Are you in the best possible shape that you can be? And the reality is, this is going to be a learning experience. Luka Doncic said this after the. Um, the, the Western Conference Finals. He's like, I really do understand now what Jason Kidd's talking about. I can't show up to camp. I have to show up to camp in midseason form, right? Yeah. Versus showing up in different. That's the difference. That is that he felt like that is the difference between the Golden State Warriors and, and Dallas. He didn't say it directly, but he said it, you know? Yeah. Um, and then I also think that there's something to be said for you know, getting it done when your best player isn't playing well. Steph had probably the worst game of his finals, but other guys stepped up. And I have to take a moment to just give kudos to Andrew Wiggins. He is the MVP of these finals. When you look at beyond the hype, he's not going to ever give you the 40-point game, but he's going to give you 20, 13 rebounds and and take on the task of defending Boston's best player, Jason Tatum. And even though Jason Tatum has had some nice stat lines, he has not been the Jason Tatum that you saw in the Eastern Conference Finals or the Eastern Conference Semifinals. And that is directly correlated to the energy and the dog that Andrew Wiggins has shown. And and, and also credit to his mat- maturation as a player. I just think he was in a bad situation in Minnesota. He got put on the right team. Um, and he also had to be humbled. He was very cocky and arrogant coming into the NBA. He was arrogant in high school. Garyon said he actually played him against him in high school. And he said he was one of the cockiest, cockiest people um, that he's played on. That's a reputation that followed him. And I think it took the humility of going to a team like Golden State that had veterans, that had guys that he actually respected and admired to let him know that that arrogance um, doesn't get you anywhere. You know, humility will make you great. Arrogance will make you complacent, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well and, and so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's just great to witness it. It's great to see it. I hope he wins. You know, as much as people want Steph to win finals MVP, uh, they gave it to Igadala one year when Golden State won for the same reasons that Andrew Wiggins should get it this year. Do you if think they win, if they win, I'm still do you not. Think this Golden State team would have beat any of the carry effort LeBron Cavs teams. Uh, I think, I think they would have. I think you think they would have also beat uh, now at seventeen, eighteen, and fifteen when you had the Kyrie injury in Game One of the Finals, but Love st- Love was out because that Celtics series that first year. Well, I think the the. If if Kyrie was at full strength in, in both of those uh, finals, Kevin Love, you know, obviously the injury is serious. But if let's say a fully healthy Cavs team versus a fully healthy Golden State team, um, 
this team, I think it will be a seven game series, you know, and um, it will be a test. I mean, Andrew Wiggins would be able and, and Draymond Green would be able to frustrate LeBron James, you know, but Kyrie would probably have his way, you know? So that's the, that's the, that's the flip of this and quite, you know, Got to appreciate LeBron's accomplishment in that being down 3-1. LeBron and Kyrie, they, they, people always talk about LeBron, but Kyrie played at a level that was equal to LeBron's to yeah. get them back from 3-1. Um, it's greatest performance in finals history, but the question remains, if Draymond doesn't go out, Andrew Bogut doesn't go out, do the Cavs win that series, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think as a definite, they don't. You know, I think that that's karma from the previous year yeah. when you lose Kyrie, you lose K Love. Now the tables have flipped. Turned. Yeah, flipped. that first year, uh, I definitely thought that with a healthy Cavs roster, they had a, a good chance of winning it. You know, Golden State wasn't in its final form yet, if you will. But yeah. I, I think Wiggins really changes the game because of what he brings on the decent defensive side of the ball and how much pressure he takes off of, essentially off of Steph defensively. Because Steph has, you know, we mentioned it, I think, last podcast, but he has grown a lot defensively. But typically, Clay was the guy who had to lock down the other other team's best player on defense. Yeah, You have two guys who are able to defend at an all-NBA level. That's a, that's a very, very tough job for any perimeter scorer to be able to make something happen. Yeah, and you know you have to also give credit to the other role players, Looney, you know, um, Porter. These guys are good. You know, yeah. Porter is having a an interesting resurgence here because he's he's always been this kind of like quiet, like sixth man or off the bench type player. And yeah, I I only know him because in two K he always gets subbed in, and I don't want him to get subbed in, and he can't shoot threes in two K. But yeah. in this series, like. I haven't ever seen him come in at the five and he's doing an unbelievable job against the Celtics who really should be out rebounding the crap out of, out of golden state. Yeah. They just aren't. Yeah, Yeah, they aren't. I mean, Wiggins is a, is a monster out there, man. Wiggins, Looney, these guys cry green. They crash the boards, you know, and if even little Steph, he's out there, he's, he's shot goes up. He's, he's down there waiting for a rebound. You know what I mean? It's a pure, when you watch the game, to me, it's a pure effort and composure difference. Mentally, at the end of a game, Golden State is zero stress. They're ready to win. Yep. Boston is like, okay, what do we do? And you can see it on their faces. Yeah, and, and you see the exhaustion. And, and honestly, I feel badly for Marcus Smart and Al Horford because those guys, when you watch them play, it's, it's these guys are leaving it all out on the floor. You know, and, you know, and I'm also seeing it from from Jalen Brown, you know, and I do think there's something, you know, and and I don't want to criticize Jason Tatum too much because his personality type, you're not, it's like Kawhi, you're not going to criticize somebody who's kind of like a very balanced person, right? Yeah. But sometimes it just feels like he's, he's not there for moments or periods of the game. You know, and that's something that the Celtics need to address and and work through. You, you know? think we're gonna see the uh, the Kobe arm sleeve? He's gonna do something. There's gonna be something he's gonna do to to inspire himself. You know, 
And if Kobe wants him to win the championship, I mean, Golden State's in trouble, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll see how that pans out in game six. Hopefully, we get a seven-game series out of this, and that would be, you know, any basketball fan's desired outcome. So, Definitely. on that note, uh, this has been an, an awesome news and notes. Uh, we'll be back uh, later this week with a deep dive. Uh, this is Parth and V reminding you to stay moving and be you, because you is fly. Pilot boys out. Pilot boys, we get on